For IBD, early intervention matters. Narrowing of the bowel structures and fistulas. These are two of the complications that can arise if IBD is left untreated. The consequences of this can be irreversible. My name is Heidi Jensen-Harris and I'm an IBD clinical nurse consultant. In our third episode of Poo&A series, GP Paresh Dorda and gastroenterologist Eva Zhang will discuss how to provide early intervention and they'll discuss the ingredients of a good referral. Hi everyone, I'm Paresh. I'm a GP based in Canberra. I have a really strong interest in people with long-term conditions and of course inflammatory bowel disease is a long-term condition. As well as my clinical work, I also have some academic affiliations and do consultancy work for New South Wales eHealth and the Agency for Clinical Innovation around Models of Care. Delighted to be here for this podcast. Thank you. Hi, everyone. I'm Eva. I'm a gastroenterologist in Sydney. Um, I did my training across South Wales as well as Victoria, and I have a special interest in inflammatory bowel disease, as well as intestinal ultrasound, which is increasingly used in the field of IBD too. And so look, this is about that early phase, right? So what we really want to be doing is understanding how we get at that intervention, because that delivers the best outcomes. Part of that is identifying people who'd benefit from that. So we want to be able to identify people at risk and those who suspected an inflammatory bowel disease. We want to be really clear around, you know, what we're trying to achieve, what are the goals of treatment, and, and have a treatment plan that's proportionate to what's required for the clinical condition. And that, of course, requires really good communication between us and the specialists, particularly with the new diagnosis. So what are the ingredients of a good referral for people with inflammatory bowel disease or suspected inflammatory bowel disease that will help our specialist colleagues appropriately triage, get that sort of uh, sense of urgency around their treatment and subsequent interventions. So coming to that first question around identifying patients at risk, their clinical presentations, there's several components here, isn't there? There's, of course, the medical history and what they present with. We want to contextualize that in, in the context of their life. So their family history, their lifestyle factors, and of course, the demographics all come together here. And when, when we're thinking about identifying the, the risk, we're not only thinking about the clinical presentation and the symptoms they come with and, and how severe and how frequent those symptoms are, but we also know that the outcome is heavily influenced by the psychosocial factors. So we need to be thinking about that. When you're triaging a referral that comes to you, how do you sort of conceptualise this? So in terms of patients who are at risk, obviously the demographics, if they're potentially younger, or a lot of younger patients, these are the patients who have their first presentation. This is not to say that older people don't get diagnosed, but, you know, that often we do see patients who are, say, in their 20s in, in adult medicine, for example. If there's a family history suggestive of inflammatory bowel disease or perhaps even a, even a personal history of autoimmune disease, again, that's another uh, risk factor that can be associated with inflammatory bowel disease. And also in terms of the demographics, you know, it's important to recognise that perhaps with some people it's it's very very important to engage with them and make sure that they are engaged with their medical care because obviously many times our cohort of patients with inflammatory bowel disease are perhaps younger than other 
presentations of chronic autoimmune diseases. And therefore, it's important to understand that. And, you know, it, it's important to capture them at that stage and really get them involved in their ongoing care and get them really committed and invested going forward. Thanks, Eva. That active involvement of patients is so important, isn't it? That's mm-hmm. why I think when we're thinking about some of the factors that might be associated with uh, poor, poor outcomes, you know, those clinical symptoms. So if someone's got significant weight loss, if they're not eating very well, they've got poor appetite, like general sort of fatigue and lethargy, you know, they can't get on with the usual things they're doing. You know, that's pretty significant. And sometimes we have people with long-term pain and as a result, maybe on opioids. Again, that can be associated with indicators of poor health. And then we've got the psychosocial components as well, haven't we? So we've got what the moods like as, as a really important factor there. Mm-hmm. Obviously, if someone's needing to go into a hospital, that's a first presentation requiring admission, that might perhaps indicate a more severe first presentation. If they've got signs of complications, for example, again, that's perhaps significant. And, you know, smoking such a core determinant of so many long-term conditions and it's no different right for inflammatory bowel disease exactly and i think a lot of these people they're on the younger spectrum other people who need want to get on with their lives you know they're active and they have full-time jobs they have families or they want to have families and so it's really important that we recognize these, these symptoms that we reduce risks of complications so they can really get on with their lives because all of these can be really debilitating when you're trying to manage living your life. Be thinking about some of those early warning signs. You know, as a GP, one of the things I guess we we always worry about is we don't want to be delaying the treatment or delaying a diagnosis for, for a patient and, you know, put them at risk of those adverse outcomes. So there's some red flags that we need to be alert for. So fever and abdominal mass, that significant weight loss we spoke about earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, bowel obstruction, or or really frequent diarrhea with blood mixed in with the stools. How often do you see this, Eva, in your practice? Like how frequent this is for you? It really depends on a lot of we're seeing these patients. So if I'm seeing a patient in, in clinic, for example, in many cases, their symptoms are a little bit less acute. Um, so perhaps there's history of weight loss, but uh, many times it's not dramatic. And sometimes it's something that if you question them specifically, if their clothes are getting looser, perhaps you know, we might pick them up. You know, the ones who end up in emergency or who have an acute flare, for example, or the ones that GPs might ring me about, these are the ones who have more alarming symptoms. These are more in line with, you know, the rectal bleeding or anemia or those who have had fevers. Those are the ones that are flagged in either emergency department or if someone picks up the phone and rings me. So certainly you do see quite a spectrum. And so it really depends on where you see them as well. You mentioned sometimes GPs ring you, but patients are concerned about. I think that's really important, isn't it? Because delay in treating someone with these red flags, alarm symptoms can really lead to an adverse outcome. Yes. One of the and challenges I think we face as GPs is getting somebody into the pathway of care quickly mm-hmm. and in a responsive way. You know, it feels to me like picking up the phone and speaking to gastroenterologists particularly a specialist gastroenterologist around inflammatory bowel disease, seems to be the most expedient way of getting a patient seen. Would you agree? 
Yes, definitely. I mean, even if there's someone who, you know, doesn't need to present to emergency, oftentimes it's important really to get them that early appointment, whether that be in the public clinic, which can be much more difficult, which is why that phone call is even more important. And even in, in private practice, um, having that phone call and trying to slot them in early, that phone call is really helpful because it really helps um, you know, it helps us triage the patient as well. And and certainly it also motivates um, us to also, um, also communicate with you quite closely as well. The GP and the specialist are part of a team in the care of this patient. And if we're going to be a, a gateway for our patients to, to the specialist services, then it's really important the communication, we, I, I guess the information we provide you is as good and as accurate as possible. What would make a good referral? Like what's, what are the useful components of a referral that will help you as a specialist um, triage appropriately, you know, get, get that person in, into a care pathway as expediently as possible? And so, of course, that, you know, starts off with maybe a reason for why we're referring to you. Uh, that background of that relevant clinical information, particularly if we've got some of those alarm signals and features we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. You know, people may have comorbid conditions, and so it's useful, I guess, for you to know what those comorbidities are. Yep, definitely. Um, mm-hmm. And what medication and allergies they have. So, you know, this, this is really just good um, basic history and examination and providing that information. Given what we said earlier about, you know, the psychosocial factors in affecting prognosis, and, and, you know, I kind of feel like as GPs, we often know the patients as a whole person, and and so we often know the social context and the psychological context. And, you know, I try and go out of my way, I think, to be over-inclusive with that psychosocial history. Maybe also giving you as specialists a sense of how this person's affected by their condition, by the symptoms. Um, Because again, we talked about, you know, impact on function can really have a a negative outcome. Is there anything else you'd like to see in a good referral? Yeah, so um, I agree. I think the I mean, the reason for a request, is it someone who you suspect has inflammatory bowel disease or it's, is it someone who already has inflammatory bowel disease and you feel like needs ongoing management? Um, you know, a context about particularly for patients who might already have inflammatory bowel disease or other comorbidities about where they're coming from. You know, are they someone who has had a bad experience in the past or have had multiple drug intolerances or are they someone who has, you know, other stresses? Do they have concomitant anxiety, depression? So I think the way we approach someone who has these, you know, additional uh, caveats, I think uh, is very helpful because I think oftentimes people can be seeking a second or a third opinion or people have had previous experiences in the past where our treatment options were a little bit more limited. And so I think um, it can be a bit scary because their past experience can obviously influence they feel like their ongoing management will be and there can be hesitancy, you know, as well for patients with with previous poor experiences or adverse effects of medications or previous surgery. So I think that kind of experience will colour how they approach us um, and and what their experience will be. So I think highlighting that if you do know about that is is important. In terms of including their obviously their 
the relevant imaging and and bloods and and stools also important. And for someone who is a potential or a new diagnosis of inflammatory bowel disease, that fecal calprotectin is is important. Certainly, you know, if there's anything additional um, with their comorbidities, if you know if they've got someone who's got also got concomitant cardiac issues or diabetes, for example, that's important to know about the intricacies of that as well, just because that helps influence you know our choices in terms of what what medication regime might be more suitable for them as well. You know, so even though the things like you know the I often see you know the, a list of their past um, diagnoses and that's really helpful as well. You know their shingles, you know whether they have chicken pox, you know their immunisation history can also be very helpful for us. As mentioned before, you know we do need that. We do do a you know pre biologic screen and and we do try and vaccinate our patients and make sure they're up to date with their screen before they're started on immunosuppressive therapy. So having that vaccine history is also immunisation history is also very important for us. Okay. I think having the way in which you word referral and, and the relevant investigations and the relevant, you know, red flags or concerning features is also very helpful for us in terms of triaging too, because, um, you know, if you're worried, right, that I am worried, you know, I feel that this person needs to be seen urgently. Those are simple things on a, on a referral that will help you know, us stratify how urgently someone needs to be seen. And I think that can be very difficult in the public system, but certainly we always notice, I always notice the really detailed referrals or the ones that are, are very well written because it, it just makes me, I think, that, you know, the value of a good referral is that it, it sort of you feel like you're speaking to the to the GP and that you can understand where what the concerns are. Um, I don't think there's a big gap in general with referrals, but I think my general um, recommendation is just to be as as detailed as possible if you have you know the relevant you know negatives or relevant positives in someone's history and really taking the time to include the relevant investigations you know um for example you know having having reading referral to say please see this person with bloating and diarrhea with no investigations is very different to receiving referral to say please see this person who has, you know, loose stools four times a day, no rectal bleeding, some weight loss, also has, you know, a family history of inflammatory bowel disease and attaching, you know, I am wondering whether this person may have inflammatory bowel disease or I think this person needs, you know, endoscopic investigation and including those investigations, whether it's normal or abnormal, is still very helpful because we will look for them and we will send, you know, the patient for those tests they're not included and we can't find them and they haven't had recent tests. So, you know, your full blood count, your iron studies, UECs, LFTs, CRPs, you know, those are things that are very important. So I think it's just a detail and even if it's a normal thing, I think, you know, even if it's a negative to say they don't have rectal bleeding and they don't have no relevant history, et cetera, those things are important. Just to really round out and pad out sort of the referral, that's, that's helpful. So, no, I don't think there's a big lack you know, it's just really everyone has a different style of referring. And I think I, you know, having that detail and the investigation attached is is very, very helpful for us. We really talked about a few things. Um, we talked about that early identification and sort of risk assessment mm-hmm. to help us prioritize the speed of intervention referral. You know, talked about the importance of good communication so our patients can get the right care. Thank you. This podcast series is produced by AgPal as part of a consortium with Crohn's and Colitis Australia 
and the Gastroenterological Society of Australia, supported by an Australian government grant. In our next episode of Poo&A, Paresh and Eva will discuss treatment goals and options. For more resources, including a suite of e-learning modules and live e-workshops, head to Crohn's and Colitis Australia GutSmart. Follow the link in the podcast description. We support GPs in diagnosing and treating IBD and assist patients to get the support they need from a gastroenterologist to live their best lives with the significant lifelong condition. If you liked this podcast, please help us by leaving five-star review and sharing the podcast with other healthcare professionals. Smell you later.